0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and world. Today you have a new host while Philip Fleming is away on study leave. My name is Sam Tranter, Director of Postgraduate Studies and lecturer in Doctrine and Ethics at Cranmer Hall, and it's great to be with you. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. How should we think about the place of experience in Christian discipleship? And in what ways can the doctrine of the Holy Spirit help us to approach it wisely? How might paying attention to the embodied and emotional dimension of Christian doctrine help us to retrieve the riches of theologians such as Saint Augustine and Martin Luther? What can academic theology and the wider church learn from Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity? And what's it got to do with play? How does scientific research on social cognition help us to get beyond the binary of individual versus collective salvation? And what does all of this mean for the plausibility and persuasiveness of Christian mission? In today's show, I'll be talking to Simeon Zal. Simeon is the University Associate Professor in Christian Theology in the Divinity Faculty of the University of Cambridge. In recent years, Simeon's research has focused on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the role of emotion and embodiment in Christian experience. His most recent book on the Holy Spirit and Christian experience was published in 2020 with Oxford University Press. And our title today is Emotion, Embodiment and the Spirit. What's experience got to do with Christian doctrine? Well, Simon, it's brilliant to have you with us on the podcast. I wanted to start, might you tell us a bit about yourself? And in particular, I've been wondering, how did you become interested in Theological issues around how Christians experience the Holy Spirit?
1: That's a great question that goes back kind of a long way in my life, I guess. So, you know, I teach Christian theology, systematic theology, and didn't know that I would do so until um, after I finished my first degree and came over to the UK for what was meant to be nine months, and this turned into 17 years studying theology. But shortly before I came over, I was involved with a student ministry at Harvard University where I was. And we ran an alpha course there. And I was sort of landed with the alpha course for reasons that just, I was the person who could do it at the time. And I hadn't, didn't have much experience of it. And essentially over the course of that period, I saw all these sort of profound kind of experiences of the Holy Spirit that people seem to be having in the context of that course. And I'd sort of, I guess I'd been raised in a slightly more a kind of a, kind of more of a classical Protestant view where you get a little bit nervous about about subjectivity and experience and emotion. And I just had a very strong conviction that it wasn't yet fully articulated theologically, but just that, that that basic suspicion I'd been, I knew about or I'd been taught to have was not really right, that there was nothing that I needed to be suspicious of here. And actually that all forms of, of Christian life are characterized by experience, including experience of the Holy Spirit in different ways. They're just different types. So that got me interested in the question. I then studied a guy named Christoph Blumhardt for my PhD, who was a really interesting kind of faith healer, proto-Pentecostal charismatic, uh, proto German from the late 19th century. And he had this really vivid sense just of the reality of God and the way he talked about the reality of God breaking in, doing things, you know, socially and politically, as well as, of healing and all sorts of things was always framed in terms of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and I was really shaped by that. And then David Ford, who was my supervisor, sort of mentioned at one point. I would th- I thought I wanted to study this guy's eschatology, and David said, "I think his pneumatology is more interesting," and that kind of set me on a track that allowed me eventually to to think through the things I'd I'd been thinking about actually since since undergrad. But then it took almost ten years to write this book on the Holy Spirit. I worked on it for nearly ten years.
0: Gosh, so it's the fruition of a a lot of personal and intellectual journeying. And I wonder, as you have now presented us with this kind of fruit of reflection on on all of that, one of the things you offer is, as it were, an affective lens on Christian doctrine, um, speaking seriously all of that dimension that you've introduced to us a little bit already. The sense of taking emotion and desire seriously, embodiment seriously, um, not simply the cognitive Just to help our listeners, could you give us a sense of how that works out in relation to some of the doctrines you talk about, say justification or sanctification?
1: Absolutely. So, Philip Melanchthon wrote kind of the first Protestant systematic theology in 1521, his Loci communes, and I was reading it and I'd been having lots of debates about classic Protestant doctrines like the bondage of the will and these kinds of things. In that particular text, he talks about the bondage of the will in terms of bondage of the affections. We just do whatever we desire and we can't change our desires very easily with sort of his account, his way of framing A more kind of protestant picture of of human nature in that time and that was new to me and i immediately thought that's an interesting category you know it risks sounding like sort of puppets on a string and the imagery is of chains and prisons and things whereas if we're talking about affect about emotion then that seems much more something that's close to what christians actually experience in their lives to, to my own experience of of things so So I started sort of paying attention to this theme of of affect or or emotion. And what you start to find is that Christian tradition, theological tradition, is absolutely full of reflection on emotion and appeal to emotion, as well as desire, which I think is a very closely related category. And for, for various historical reasons, Protestants in particular had sort of had a history of just not noticing, just thinking that the affect language in Luther or in Calvin or even in Augustine is kind of window dressing on more fundamental kind of propositional ideas so for example calvin begins his discussion of predestination by talking about fear and he, how he thinks that having the right kind of doctrine of election is is really important so that you won't have you won't be afraid and then the council of trent responds to that kind of position and says, no, it's, it's, it's actually important to have a certain kind of fear of God to not have too much confidence in, in where you stand. Otherwise you'll, you'll have pride, you know, and, and just realizing there was this debate about fear going on that hadn't really been paid that much attention to. And actually that's all through the tradition in different ways. And of course, the fruit of the spirit are, you know, three, the first three are, are affections. You know, it's often when you when you notice something, you have a new idea or a new, you sort of start, you start seeing it everywhere. But affect is something that really is everywhere in Christian theology. And the more you sort of look, the more you realize how weird it is in the modern period that we haven't paid that much attention to it, that, that we have kind of theology somehow got distance from bodies. Because emotion, to me at least, is, is always an embodied phenomenon. That, that, that's really fundamental to it. And and so all these ideas about how theology, especially Protestant theology, had gotten away from the body was partly because we stopped paying attention to what the better representatives actually said. So a way of thinking about this and what I noticed, so Melanchthon, when he talks about justification by faith, which we think of as the classic cold abstract doctrine, at least as, as you, you often hear, you know, it's a, it's a legal fiction. It's like there's an abacus in the sky and God sort of chooses to move some beads around and then to, to sort of get you into heaven on a legal loophole. That was this kind of characterization. But you know, you read Melanchthon, who actually is the main author of the doctrine of forensic justification, the courtroom theory, as we've kind of received it in modern Protestantism, the whole thing is actually about what he calls consolation and consolation of the terrified heart. He thinks that justification's main sort of power and significance and the main way it should be articulated, at least um, or one of the very most important ways. He thinks that human beings live under fear uh, of God, fear of judgment, fear of alienation and guilt, and that justification is, is significant, is effective, is better than what his Catholic opponents were offering, insofar as it is capable of genuinely generating consolation in light of that Kind of religious and sort of existential fear. And so seeing that there's a sequence, you know, so the law generates fear and then the gospel gets rid of the fear and brings joy and hope and peace. And he saw justification as a kind of affective pedagogy, as a way in which God works with your emotional life to bring you to a place of, of peace and consolation. That doesn't mean it reduces to that. Of course, he did think there was something going on with the soul and with, you know, before God and that had eternal consequences. But insofar as it got separated from an actual concrete experience of feeling consoled by the Christian message, in this case... The doctrine of justification by faith alone, then something had gone wrong in theology. And he thought that that was a, a key problem. So actually, he thinks that his opponents, his Catholic opponents, have this head trip where that you can have grace without feeling it. And uh, anyway, it's funny because he gets accused of, of, of that very thing. So I guess that's, that's an example. I, I later learned that Augustine's whole view, really, of what Christian life is and looks like and what sanctification is, what the process of of Christian transformation is, is deeply, deeply tied to the transformation of the heart to affection and desire. So for Augustine, you know, we talk about love, you just need to love neighbor. And he says, but love is a delight. You can't love something that you don't delight in. It's not some cold duty. It's a real affective, it's much more appealing. And that made sense to me, you know, and so far as I've ever gone in directions that I'm, um, I feel are, are are transformative in a good way. It's been out of a sense of delight and being drawn and attracted rather than kind of forced or argued even into those places. So Augustine is the real root here. So I hope that gives a little bit of a picture.
0: Absolutely. It does. And you have really drawn out for us the ways in which this affective lens or depth helps us get to great justification, but also then some hints as how do we think about growth in holiness? And I wonder Into that picture, very influentially, very importantly for you, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So how did you come to see the doctrine of the Holy Spirit connecting with these things about the affective dimension of, say, justification?
1: Actually, it's a good question. Uh, I I know I did at some point. (laughs) The the first and key thing is that when you start reading, especially Martin Luther very carefully, I've spent a fair bit of time studying Luther, and um, he always invokes the Spirit at sort of the point where the idea of justification becomes a reality in your life, that the natural language there is pneumatological. And so, of course, it's the spirit that that sort of brings about and applies the gospel that mediates between the sort of what Christ has done in theory and your actual life as an individual in God's world. But also, if you sort of read very carefully, he also thinks that only the Holy Spirit can properly preach the law. So the reason why you can preach the law and tell people what they should do and, and it doesn't always do anything. Whereas other times if the law is sort of rightly preached, someone feels completely undone and exposed and sort of prepared to to change their lives and and find consolation from God. And the difference there is the action of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit knows the art of doing that he says. So so he, he thinks about the law and the gospel as pneumatological categories. And at the same time, I was sort of studying the Holy Spirit more more generally. And again, it's the, it's the most natural theological language or grammar we have. It's not the only one, but it's probably the most central one for thinking about where the rubber hits the road in theology, where divine realities, metaphysical realities, the kinds of things we can talk about in a seminar room come to be things that actually touch human beings. The, the way theology has talked about that has been pneumatological. It's been the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because of because of Paul, because of Act, because of John. I mean, there, there are various sources, because of, and of course, Augustine so does the same thing. It's the Spirit who pours love into your heart for him. That's the center of all this affective transformation. It's he, he grounds it in Romans 5 5. He quotes that, that verse all the time that it is the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it is the Spirit who is the one who transforms desire and affection. There's a kind of affinity or uh, between the Spirit and and affect between the spirit and experience so it, it has its sources in paul but it also is is just there kind of dogmatically
0: thank you and i can see that what you're doing for us is a kind of reparative or therapeutic move within protestant theology protestant piety in terms of this well re-embrace if you're right of of the affections of design one might say well isn't all modern theology really about experience anyway So I wonder, you've given us, I think, a really persuasive account of why, if you like, the late 20th century critique of the turn to experience isn't quite right. It doesn't actually preserve everything about the Reformation or indeed the reality of discipleship. But what does your argument and the way you give it that pneumatological definition have to help us with in terms of other kinds of turn to experience?
1: Mm, that's a great question. And I think uh, w- with the book and then my thinking, you know, it all depends on who you're talking to. So there are people maybe in a sort of more broadly speaking reformed with a lowercase R world who, who continue to be very anxious about experience because of concerns about sin, self-deception, idolatry, that the, the kind of classic Bardian worry that if you look to your experience to discern what God is up to or what God is like, sin is such that you're going to start baptizing whatever you happen to want or, or feel and think that it's God. And, yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing you might see in, say, the prosperity gospel is sort of the, that, that kind of dynamic is the worry. I think and it's a legitimate worry. It's a good worry, but it's, it's been overdone. On the other hand, a lot of theology, and especially more recently, we had a whole century maybe of, of academic theology, at least in the, the sort of German world, being very interested in experience. And then that seemed to come into some problems that, that Bart pointed out. But the, the thing that I'm trying to do that isn't just saying experience is great and experience is always reliable and experience is I mean, how do you say that experience is vital is fundamental is crucial is sort of the engine of so much that's that, that actually happens in in religious life there you know without a, who would care about religious life if it didn't have any kind of spiritual experiential traction for them so how do you how do you acknowledge that fact without then falling prey to being naive or just assuming that you know exactly what God wants because it matches on to what you feel. And so that's partly why it was important to me to ground the the account of experience in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're just doing bad New Testament theology if we're not taking experience seriously. Paul says, did you experience so much for nothing to the Galatians? He's trying to make an argument about justification by faith, and he appeals to experience. So the idea that we could just avoid experience entirely, I just don't think really follows... Biblically, traditionally, or, or on various grounds that I could talk about. On the other hand, you have letting the the, the tradition and the Bible, I guess, be a, be the sort of control uh, at the heart of it. Be generating the the way that you talk about it makes a big difference. It means you're not just baptizing all experience. Your experience can be wrong while still being important. As in, you can have a have a wrong perception, say, of of something that you think God is saying or communicating. And your experience is still important. It's still where you're sort of living and it still needs to be engaged with. So I think that's partly people have gotten quite concerned about the question of whether it's right or wrong, accurate or inaccurate. And and it's more that experience is just the sort of texture in which we all move and live and is, is complex and variegated. And experience is not just mountaintop experiences. It's not just Paul on the road to Damascus. It can be quiet. It can be subtle. It can be Long duration it can be but it also can be dramatic uh, and often is in the New Testament so there's a kind of a dogmatic control I think by using pneumatological language to think about experience rather than just talking generally about a religious experience which hasn't really worked in religious studies I think theology is in a better place to talk about it than, than religious studies in some ways for that reason it's also why I like talking about emotion rather than experience often, because emotion is, is, it captures a lot of what we need to capture in talking about experience in a slightly more precise, rigorous, and traditionally bound way. And I think that's quite important. And then finally, you know, Augustine has a remarkable model that I'm still learning from in in how to take emotion embodiment experience seriously um, in a way that is still profoundly grounded in the tradition and deeply aware both of the mystery of the self, the fact that we often don't even know what we're feeling, and yet the centrality of feeling the, 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 he, he holds those things together. And I've tried to learn from him.
0: And who better to learn from. I wonder if something else It strikes me that is going on in your work with this turn to pneumatology is a kind of receiving within the conversation that is academic theology, something of the wisdom and the gift of charismatic and Pentecostal sisters and brothers and their traditions. And I wonder what's your view on that? What's your experience of that? And in what ways do you imagine this project as kind of engaging what can be a closed academic conversation to what is, you know, a a massively vibrant, growing, future-determining part of the church?
1: Thank you for that question. One thing that I've found even more over the years, I've been in places like theology research seminars for, I don't know, 15 years now. And more and more, you notice that there are people in the room who are Pentecostal. And I used to give papers on, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and someone would sort of come up and say, I'm actually a Pentecostal. There is this sense of Pentecostalism, sort of people vaguely being aware that this is probably the most important thing going on in 20th century Christianity. You know, maybe Vatican II is in the same league, but you know, 500 million People, you know, are some form of Pentecostal or charismatic, and yet the academy didn't know what to do with it, uh, and didn't know how to, how to think theologically with, uh, this movement other than kind of ethnographically, which is also quite interesting and helpful. But, and, uh, so partly that had to do with this kind of Bardian fear of experience. Partly it had to do with a kind of, I don't know, a kind of condescension. And also just this is happening for the most part in, especially in the 20th century and in, in parts of the world that are, um, further from the sort of ivory tower potentially. But, just about the most gratifying review I've had of the book was in the Pentecostal journal Pneuma, where the reviewer concluded by saying that this book will hopefully really do a lot to open up space for for a bridge kind of between what Pentecostals are thinking about and and saying and have to offer, including, you know, theologically and sort of practically and the life of the academy. Though another Pentecostal reviewer said, we doesn't talk about Pentecostalism almost at all. And, and, uh, and I was a little sad about that because I did see it, I was pretty conscious of, of trying to open the door there. I think what the church, what theology and the church that is not Pentecostal can learn from that sort of set of traditions. I mean, A, the importance of experience and the importance of, of the Holy Spirit. I'm having to sort of argue very carefully to convince people of stuff that Pentecostals have known for a hundred years, you know, at one level. There's a really wonderful category, though, in Pentecostal theology. I actually wrote a whole chapter about it and then ended up cutting it. For other reasons, I'll find somewhere else to put it. But the category of play. So Pentecostals love thinking about the work of the Spirit in re- as a kind of playfulness. There's a creativity and a joy and an openness. The Spirit is sort of the freedom of the Spirit that blows where it wills. Isn't just a sort of that means we can't control it. It also means it's fun. David Ford, my supervisor, likes the analogy of jazz for the how how the Holy Spirit works, which is a similar kind of idea. So that kind of playfulness uh, and joy, and fundamentally a sense of the reality of God that theology that isn't taking seriously somehow the the reality of god or or that that's so hidden it under layers of other things that it goes wrong and that's another thing and i'm also very interested in healing and 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 how that relates to embodiment the work of the holy spirit in in healing so i think there's a lot more to be thinking about and with with our uh, pentecostal brothers and sisters
0: absolutely i think you're working on so many fronts with this book actually and it's kind of skillfully interwoven with the thesis. But one other kind of front that you're working on, I wouldn't quite want to call it apologetic, but there's something missional going on here, which is captured by the thought that in contemplation of the effective, significant salience of Christian doctrine actually helps us see the explanatory power and perhaps even beauty of Christian truth claims. I suspect that sort of bubbling away in what you're doing, but is that part of how you imagine it?
1: Uh, it is. It certainly is. Once you sort of take on board, you know, with Augustine or, or Paul or whomever, the, the, the idea that people are fundamentally creatures of, of desire and that all the, you know, their reasoning and thinking are, are all part of that and knowledge is all caught up in it. They're not really in opposition, but, but nevertheless, that the sort of the most primary level in a person is the feeling level. Then you very quickly see that that has implications for something like apologetics. For myself, I'm interested in in the idea that the, you know these things have to be attractive they have to be appealing that, that there's a room for aesthetics and beauty uh, including the beauty of ideas i would never have been a theologian if i didn't find ideas moving you know christian theological ideas profound and rich and just resonant i just wanted to i was just a you know that almost like an itch you just want to keep thinking about it because it's so so appealing emotionally, you know, I guess that's a way of talking about that appeal. So for sure, there's the Center for Cultural Witness that's being put together by Bishop Graham Tomlin, and we might be working with them a bit here in Cambridge. And that's one of the things that he wants to draw on is sort of thinking about cultural witness and also affectively, experientially, that that Christianity is so appealing, so beautiful. I, in my um, lectures on, you know, Christ's salvation and the Trinity, I always bring in all this visual art, you know, it's just a, it's a shame not to do so. There's so much amazing visual art that both illustrates and problematizes sort of theological claims and just helps you think about these things in a, in a way that it's not non-rational, you know, to, to reflect on the humanity of Christ together with Hans Holbein's body of the dead, Christ in the tomb, but it's, it's richer, it's thicker, there's more to it. It's more true to what life is actually like, the kinds of things that really do persuade and draw people. So certainly I think if you can't paint an attractive picture and a plausible picture, an emotionally plausible one that that helps you make sense of what your experience is, you know, then if Christianity is very abstract, that that it's being presented as a sort of set of concepts that doesn't seem to bear uh, a relation to things that people just experience day to day, then of course, it's not going to be compelling or seem particularly relevant. But actually, there's such powerful resources for communicating the plausibility of Christianity, um, especially when you have that kind of lens. But there's a million things to say sort of on on that front a million places to go. But I think you're right to see that thread.
0: Well, we've worked you pretty hard on these different threads. I've got one final thread question to ask you, which is really about an element of this book that you've taken forward in more recent research, even since it's come out, which is, uh, well, here at the podcast, we've just finished an eight-part series on faith and science. And actually, your research is, is a sort of borderland here. And I wonder where do you see theological value arising from scientific insights in your work that's been social cognition, emotion, and the experience of salvation. Tell us a bit about that emerging research inquiry.
1: I'd love to. Once you sort of integrate the idea that experience is Part of that which, with which theology works, and it's just where we live, and it sort of always has been in some form, then you suddenly realize that all sorts of human, um, forms of inquiry have a lot to say that's really of interest about experience. You know, so if I'm, I'm interested in emotion for good, solid theological reasons, and yet psychology is a young field and it's experimentally, but one of the, the, the thicker, more established areas is the psychology of, Emotion and they've shown that all these sort of easy binaries that we sort of post enlightenment binaries we have about emotion versus reason or, or something that they really f- fall apart. They're just, they're just too thin to capture the complexity of the interactions of cognition and, and feeling and that all cognition is felt in different ways and, and so on. So once you start seeing it, just that life is part of the material that theology has to work with, then these other disciplines become friends potentially and they don't have to be controlling. They don't have to determine. What you say, but they can, they can teach you about things you're already interested in as a theologian. And so that's part of how I see theology and science engagement. I happen to be married to a, a psychologist, someone that's a PhD in empirical study of the psychology of religion and specifically religious emotions. So that may have something to do with my interest in these categories. But the article that I've written recently on this, on how research from social cognition can help us think about this long standing kind of Trope now I would I, I call it about uh, individualistic views of salvation versus communal or socially oriented views of salvation and you see it all over the place people have been talking about that trope in all different fields but I kept coming across it and finding myself frustrated by it in New Testament studies especially sort of Paul studies there was this critique of the so-called individualistic Protestant picture of soteriology as opposed to a more and of course. I want the communal, you know, I want the social, I want us to, no, no one wants us to be alone sitting in a kind of vacuum uh, with God. I don't think that's the way that life sort of tends to actually work. But the one thing that is really obvious that I, that, I mean the kind of way in which this can just break down that binary in productive, useful ways is so psychologists study social emotion, the classic introverted introspective individualistic Protestant emotion is guilt and that comes up over and over. You're sitting there with you and your guilt, and all you care about is getting rid of your guilt, you know, before God. And that's why you're not thinking about other people or, or how you're part of a group. But a social psychologist would say, what are you talking about? Guilt is a social emotion guilt has no meaning apart from its its whole purpose is to sort of generate social ties to to help you repair ties that have gone wrong i mean it's guilt is always in relation to other agents and relations and that's true of, of really really all the religiously significant emotions pretty much are social emotions of course the, the difference is just that in the in the sort of the individualistic case the, the other agent in the social relation is god but the, the, the cognitive structures, you know, and, and systems and so on are, are the same when we're relating to God in a lot of ways. You know, if you're worried about guilt and, and, and forgiveness in relation to God, you're, you're not, it's not like there's some other part of your brain than the part that worries about guilt and forgiveness uh, in relation to human beings. And so, so actually what we have is a social relation to an invisible agent who may or may not exist, you know, as far as, you know, many people are concerned. And so that's interesting. That's a little weird, but it's not the same as sheer introspection or non-sociality. And also a lot of the research on even even fully communal, not just dyadic, not just two people, social relations, but sort of communal relations, how how we get involved in communal identities and this kind of thing. Even that stuff is always sort of, there's a negotiation between these. We learn about those things partly because of their effects on individuals and how individuals come to feel parts of a group. And that's fine. Those things are, are not in opposition. So the idea that there's an opposition between the individual and the communal, again, but that's also one that just kind of gets so problematized and just reconfigured once you start looking at how social psychologists look at such things that it kind of clears the way. I don't think it sort of proves therefore this or that. I don't think psychology is often able to actually make quite that level of claim in relation to these complex, especially religious psychological matters. It's a relatively young science. The the, the theories are always underdetermined by the data, but it can help you think of new categories and new perspectives that are plausible and that other people in other disciplines to rethink some of our knee-jerk categories, our assumptions about what individuality means or communality means. So that's just uh, one example. And I also have used some of that kind of work to talk about this legal fiction argument against justification by faith. I mean, the idea that your change in the perception of powerful agent who's judging you to not judging you, the idea that that wouldn't create an embodied emotional Response again just wouldn't make sense of that, basically. But you have to be very careful, and I, I try to use mainly only very well-established, very general sort of points because a lot of the details are always changing. You think, aha, I found the study that proves the thing that I want to be true theologically, and then three years later you realize it's been completely overturned or something. So you're you little have to. I mean, you guys, I'm sure have been talking about this with many people, but uh, there are some dangers or just some some complexities to navigate in the science and theology discourse.
0: Well, Simeon. We started off this conversation thinking a bit about a kind of autobiographical way into your research. We've gone through various facets of it, the way it's developed theologically, the way it's developed now in engagement with sciences. And the last question we always ask on this podcast is, how has your theological research shaped your own faith and your ministry, your teaching?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. Question. What I'd like to say is that I sort of learned theologically that I need to take emotion seriously. And then I learned how to then apply that, you know, in my own faith and and ministry. And there's definitely truth to that. I think to some degree for me doing theology is often the raw material often is something from your experience, something, why did I really not like that position? Or why did that, the way that church treated me really really didn't work or bothered me or, or created problems or, or was really effective? What was so good about that church instead of the other one or that min- this person's ministry rather than that one? Or even why did that sermon speak to me and this one didn't? Why is this form of prayer sort of attractive and helpful and the other one seemed dry and boring? And, and so reflecting on your own encounters of those things is often where things I actually feel like I have to say theologically are. And then you start to say, well, wait a minute, what's what's going on? Why, why was that? Using the theological categories and, and thinking and sticking together with others can kind of deepen and extend your, uh, these initial insights turn into something much sort of sturdier and, and potentially that you can share usefully with others and with the church. So partly it's, it's the other way around. I mean, it's easy to talk about how it's the other way around, the, the faith and ministry forming the, the theology. But absolutely, I I I think there are real implications for the kinds of things we've been talking about. I think, for example, I think a good account of emotion and grace in the kind of way I've been describing gives more room for making sense of when Christians feel like failures, when they feel like sanctification and transformation that is sort of supposed to be happening theologically is not happening. Well, gosh, I don't seem to be any better. I seem to be worse after 10 years of this. And I think people often don't express that because they think it's theologically wrong, I'd like to think the kind of account I'm giving gives space for saying that that's material to work with. And that's something that we don't need to be quite so afraid of talking about and acknowledging. I call non-transformation insofar as people experience that. And I think that's something that Augustine and Luther were deeply driven by their own experiences of non-transformation at key points. So that would be one kind of area. You know, it's much harder don't you lecture for, for many years and, and things. And going back into the pulpit, which I've been doing a little bit more Recently, it's it is a it's a wonderful challenge, but it forces you to kind of distill what's actually helpful <laughs> with all this stuff that I've been uh, thinking about and writing about. Gosh, people don't, that whole distinction, which I think is so exciting, no one cared about that at all. Whereas this other sort of very simple thing, or, or or thing that I thought was secondary, turns out to be really helpful to people. So I'm interested in in those dynamics and trying to learn myself how to how to better do it. And I
0: think that is a wonderful note on which to end. So Simeon Zell, thank you for joining us on Talking Theology.
1: It's great to be with you. Thanks. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a the theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.